this morning I'd like to continue with the theme that we first brought up last week, which is practicing with the eight worldly winds. <laughs> and I, I imagine that many of you did consciously practice with, with those eight winds or eight conditions of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. How many people gave more attention to that last week, in the last week, and practiced with it? So, so a good, a good um, percentage of us. So I'd like to, this morning, briefly review that teaching and go a little further, particularly in investigating how to practice with the, with the, the so-called eight worldly winds and look at some of the discussion which came up last time, uh, and, but take the sense of practice a little further and also give significant time for us to just to talk and report on what we found. So that's my intention for the morning. So this teaching is a powerful one. I mentioned last time that when I first heard it, it kind of had a jolt on me. I said, boy, they've really named the uh, factors which can lead me to feel pain or to suffer or to feel really good, that in a way, naming pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame, is to name these uh, very powerful factors or conditions which often feel like they, it often may feel to us like those conditions rule our lives. The teaching is, points to how we might work more skillfully with those uh, conditions and, as it were, not be blown around by the winds as much, to work more skillfully. The winds do not stop. They keep going, but how we relate to them can change. So again, the, uh, the term in the Pali language is lokadhamma. Uh, loka, sometimes translated as the worldly winds or the winds of the world. And in the text, it says that it's these eight factors. It said, this is in the teaching of the Buddha, turn the world around, keep the world turning around. The world turns around these eight conditions, and then he names them. And in that, in that teaching, which, which we looked at last time, he basically said that those conditions, uh, dhamma is, could be translated as conditions, or um, some people just use the word dharma uh, and, and don't translate it. So you look at Pema Chodron, and she, the uh, uh, American-born uh, Tibetan nun, who's been very influential in uh, Western Buddhism, and she, she just uses the phrase, the eight worldly dharmas. Some people use the conditions, some people talk about the winds, which actually isn't a literal translation, but it actually, I think, expresses the meaning better. <laughs> and that's particularly beloved in the Tibetan tradition. You know. And so the, we find those traditions everywhere, uh, everywhere we go. In the, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, uh, the great meditator and yogi and poet, beloved... Uh, uh, beloved figure, uh, Milarepa, from the 12th century, he says, uh, he, this is what he said, 
I left my home and sought the solitude of the mountains, but even there the eight worldly winds followed me. <laughs> when I came to choose a cave, I looked for one which was warm, dry, and sheltered. The eight worldly winds were still blowing in my mind. So they're, they're, they're there, uh, they're, they're strong, and the practice guidance which, we, which I gave last time well, was simple. It was to uh, first be aware that they're present. The second, explore them. What's their nature? What's the nature of these eight factors? And thirdly, develop a skillful response. What's a skillful response to each of the eight when they're present? And today I want to add a sort of a a fourth practice instruction, which is come to rest increasingly in something deeper than the eight winds. And I'll I'll, um, unpack that a little bit later. But I want want to do a brief review of the teaching. And this is what this is what Pema Chodron says in her. This is from, let's see, this is from the book, I believe, uh, "When Things Fall Apart: Heart Advice for Difficult Times." It's a very, very um, good book. She says about the eight worldly winds. We might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings of pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. A more practical approach would be to get to know them. See how they hook us. See how they color our perception of reality. See how they aren't all that solid. Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means for growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. So very very similar practice guidance. So what are these these, uh, winds? What are these factors? Uh, In many ways, I think that naming these eight factors or conditions names more precisely some of the ways that we typically get hooked or caught, uh, and in different ways. That the, the eight factors, four are, as it were, more positive, four are, are more negative. And so we tend, when we don't look at the carefully at our experience of these factors, when they just come and go, as it were, when there's not mindfulness, we tend to grab hold of the positive factors, that is, pleasure or pleasant experiences, gain, uh, fame, or we might think of fame as having a good reputation or being seen in a certain light by others, uh, or by, by praise or by compliments or whatever. We tend to want those, grab hold of them when they're there, seek for them when they're not there, and we tend to push away, again, in a, a somewhat unconscious way, the, and sometimes compulsive way, the so-called negative factors, that is, unpleasant experiences, experiences of loss, experiences of not being seen well or not being seen how we like to be seen, and uh, being blamed. And we'll come back to the question, which I thought was a really good one, which we talked about at the end of last week, which was the question that, that came from the, uh, 
partly in response to the reading of the passage from the Buddha where he said that the, per, the practitioner who works skillfully with these eight factors is no longer elated or dejected when they come, no longer elated by the positive four or dejected by the negative four. And I want to come back to that in more detail because that's an interesting question. Does this mean that we become robots or don't have feelings for the positive or just become kind of indifferent to everything? Positive, negative, you know, I don't care. Kind of, do we lose affect? You know, and sometimes that's a fear in meditation that people have, like, are we just going to become these stoic figures who don't really feel very deeply? Do I, will I lose my passion? I think that's an interesting question, and I think a, um, uh, a way of understanding how we relate to the eight winds, we'll have to sort that one out. And my, you know, my sense of it is that the teaching, and this is be my interpretation, I think it's very common to how I've heard it taught by others. But there may be some cultural differences, though, between how we approach this, coming especially Northern California, probably Phoenix to some extent also, <laughs> uh, Northern California therapeutic culture, and we somehow... Uh, very questionable about anything which suppresses emotion. You know, we want to, as it were, give the life of emotion, but the but then the kind of the interface. I think that's happening between a more psychological approach and a more meditative approach. Is we do look at where we get hooked by our uh, so-called positive experiences or negative experiences, where we get hooked, where we get caught where they take us over, where there's not mindfulness and so forth. So that's, that's a theme which I'll try to weave through this, this presentation. Um, in, especially in the Tibetan tradition, this teaching is seen to be right at the center of our practice. This is not a, a light teaching or a secondary teaching. There, here's a story. There was a Geshe, a teacher, of the ancient monastery of uh, Retring, whose main practice was circumambulating the stupa. A great teacher, Dramtumpa, observing this, spoke to the Geshe, advising him, it is very good that you were circumambulating the, the stupa, but it would be better if you practiced dharma. <laughs> <laughs> the Geshe thought to himself, Geshe, again, is, is a certain... Um, kind of like the equivalent of having a PhD. It means someone who studied quite a bit and passed certain tests. So it's kind of like a PhD in Buddhist studies. So they, he may have been having, the story may have some slight jabs at being overly studious, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, the Geshe thought to himself, circumambulation does not seem to be a very good practice. Perhaps I'd better read scriptures. But then after doing that, Trump Tump, Tampa again told him, you were doing fine with your reading of scriptures, but it would be much better if you practiced dharma. Maybe you can see where this is going. <laughs> so the Geshe thought that perhaps he should concentrate on meditation. But again, he was advised that although meditation was good, he would be better off doing dharma practice. The Geshe, who by now had run out of ideas about what to do, asked Tampa, what do you mean by dharma practice? Tampa told him, you should give up your attachment to the eight worldly winds. 
end of story. So it's really, uh, it's taken to be central. So we, we know the, these eight winds, they're, they're strong in our experience and they come up all the time. You know, the first group, uh, pleasure and pain, it's something that in um, the teachings on the second foundation of mindfulness teach us that there are pleasant, unpleasant and neutral responses to every moment of experience. You know, and we notice them when they become probably either at a certain level of intensity, positive or negative, but they're happening all the time. If you check in right now, is your experience pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? Maybe in your body, in your mind, in your emotional life. And so the teaching is to really to look at this, to study what's the nature of pleasure and pain. And again, we can use the language of pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes pain feels overly interpretive to our our ears. And it's really to look, how much am I, as it were, tossed around by seeking for pleasant experiences or avoiding unpleasant experiences? How much am I um, continually hooked so that I, that, that, Pleasant and unpleasant experiences rule me to a certain extent. So it's really to inquire, to see how much that is the case. Uh, how much am I, uh, how much I, do I really notice when I have strongly pleasant experiences and really study what they are? So part of this is an invitation to just study. What is it like to have a pleasant experience? One of the nice things about retreats is we get to do that. We get to have a meal and really study what it's the experience is like in the middle of uh, pleasant sensations related to food, just to really be with it. What does our mind do? Do we tend to grab onto it? Do we tend to, does our mind say, this is really good? You know, at a retreat it forms the thought like, this is really good. How can I get seconds without appearing greedy? <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, you know. Uh, uh, and we want, we're, we're invited to study our mind or, you know, uh, something doesn't taste good and we, you know, maybe at someone's house and they've spent hours baking something and it comes out in our minds not so good and what do you do with that one? You know, how do you, how do you work with that? So it's to really study uh, pleasant and unpleasant experiences to see how much we're driven. And again, the key uh, insight here is that the problem is not pleasant or unpleasant experiences. It's what we do with them. And that's going to be a key for all of these eight wins. You know, you could have a life of total pleasure. All the time pleasure. And if you weren't hooked by it, no problem. That's sometimes a misunderstanding in Buddhist practice that, that it's thought that pleasure is the problem. It's really the attachment to the pleasure that's the problem. And I, I think I mentioned last week how I had a meditation group and I, we were going over this kind of teaching and I said, we could just sit here the whole evening and eat chocolate the whole evening. And that wouldn't be necessarily an issue. And they said, let's do it next week. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. <laughs> And we did. We just ate the chocolate, and we, you know, we can watch. You know, what what is our what does our mind, body, heart do with that experience? In itself, none of these eight wins are a problem, because they better not be, because they're happening all the time. 
right? And so, but we can, we can notice that they're there, we can uh, explore them, and we can look for a way of responding skillfully. Same thing with, uh, with gain and loss. You know, the gain and loss are happening all the time. And we can feel, um, we can sometimes uh, be, have a certain amount of uh, pain or happiness when there's gain and pain when there's loss. And I think that's very natural. This is partly answering that question. What do we actually feel with these wins? And is the aim somehow to be emotionally neutral towards everything? I don't think so. That's certainly not how I would interpret it. You know, I was, uh, some of you may have listened to the, the news earlier today. I heard the news at 7 a.m. And I heard a recording of, uh, I think it was, uh, one, it was one of the two uh, journalists who were released from North Korea. And for those of you who may not have heard the news, that happened, I guess, yesterday. And I heard the voice of, I think it was Laura, Laura Ling, who along with Eula Lee was released. And uh, she, she uh, was just telling the story. It was, it was very moving to hear. She was speaking and saying, I was, we were brought to a room. And then across the room, I saw President Clinton. You can imagine the emotion, right? And, you know, I cried when I heard that this morning. And probably many of you did. It's just very, very moving. It's, it's tremendous gain. You know, and she said, at that point, I knew something was happening. <laughs> you know, um, and it was a very powerful moment. It's, it's, call it a kind of gain, or, or it's a gaining of freedom, obviously. And very, very moving, right? And so it seems very natural to have those emotions of whatever. You know, just like with our practice that we do at the end of the sitting. In some ways, that practice that we do where we ask for both challenging experiences and beautiful experiences like inviting the eight winds to be present. And I think we meet those experiences with a certain amount of uh, kindness and equanimity. But there can be strong feeling when they occur, and I think that's very natural. Uh, it's a question of what we do with that. You know, so, so that would be partly a response to that question from the end of, of last time. So we have then uh, also we want to, again, we want to, with gain and loss, know that that experience is there, explore it, and see how to skillfully respond. Same with uh, fame and disrepute, or how we're, as it were, seen by others, quite related to the last one, praise and blame. So again, we can, we can <coughs> look to how that, may <coughs> how that may bind us, or how we may get caught by how we're seen by others. You know, and it's often said that one of the benefits of growing older is getting less concerned about how others see one. How many people have experienced that? <laughs> how many people haven't experienced that at all? <laughs> uh, that's exaggerated, but, but it's, you know, it's, um, um, I think it's actually related maybe to what I'll talk to in a while about how part of this practice points us to rest in something deeper. I think, I think that the, at, at, the, at its best, when we get older, we rest in something deeper as opposed to just becoming more blasé. I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily about that. So again, we, we can take instances 
where, we, where issues maybe of how we're seen by others, self-image and so forth comes up, how we react or respond, how we, how we somehow look for certain kinds of attention. Uh, not necessarily fame in the sense, uh, in the conventional sense, because actually probably few of us really want that. Some people do. Some people want to become famous. How many people here want to become famous? Anyone? I, yeah, I think it's not, it's not such a popular motivation these days. <laughs> uh, but, um, and it's actually, I know, I remember, I went to college and there were quite a few people who I went to college with who came from famous families. Most of them were trying to get away from the fame of their last names as quickly as they could. And sometimes it led to actually quite negative consequences, you know, because the fame was almost like a, what, like an albatross, to use that metaphor, around their necks, and they didn't like having a certain last name. And um, it was very interesting. You know, I was surprised, you know, I was surprised and, uh, to see that. So we can, we can look at how our, uh, this is an invitation to look at how not maybe we don't want fame, but we want to be seen in a certain light, or we want someone to make a comment about us, or so forth. And not to say that they're not important elements of that, but it's really to see to what extent does this uh, rule me or make me do certain things? To what extent does being seen negatively knock me off my center? Or our perception of being seen negatively knock me off my center? Um, there's a famous uh, story in the Zen tradition, which may or may not be true. It's from the, I think from the 17th century. It's a story of the Zen teacher Hakuin. And it's really a, a, you know, kind of a somewhat extreme version of the teaching about fame and disrepute. So Hakuin was a famous Zen teacher. And it so happened that in the town where he lived, a young woman became pregnant. And she reported that Hakuin was the father. People started to see Hakuin more negatively. <laughs> and he, when people came to him, it's reported that all he said was, is that so? Later, the young woman gave birth, and Hakuin was asked to raise the child, and which he did. And uh, they brought the child to him, and he, he said, they said, we want you to take care of him. And he said, is that so? <laughs> okay, remember, this is a Zen story. <laughs> About two or three years later, the young woman could um, really no longer live with basically the falsehood she had told. And she went and spoke publicly and said that actually the father was uh, a young man. And she named him. And people came to bring the child, uh, take the child away from Hakuin. And what did he say? Is that so? Um, again. Whether or not it happened like that, I don't know, but it's really to point to supposedly Hakuin's resting in something that was a little somewhat impervious to public uh, reputation. 
even though in the story his reputation went way down. And I don't know if it went way back up. You know, it's like the newspapers when they print the stories, the corrections come on A2 in small print, right? <laughs> so, uh, but it's an interesting story about, the, about how, again, I think it's a teaching story to point to how we might work with, with those kind of wins. Interesting, isn't it? Would you do that when, you were, when your reputation was besmirched and just say, is that so? <laughs> or would you say, you know, what, what, would, what would we do? Uh, and then the last, which may be for many of us the most powerful, praise and blame, right? Maybe even more powerful than some of the others. How are we, are, am I given uh, compliments? Am I judged? Do I feel judged? You know, it can be, I think for many of us, the most intense of these wins. And, and in some ways the most challenging. How do we work with praise and blame? Yeah, I know that that's been true for me. Last time I mentioned a story of having done some writing and uh, related to the work of the psychologist uh, Ken Wilber and him having written something quite negative and I was feeling criticized in front of 20,000 people <laughs> and how, I, how that was for my practice, which I was blown around <laughs> some by that. But, had, but I also uh, uh, said, now is a good time for a retreat. <laughs> And it was actually very revealing because, again, it was just the mindfulness practice beautiful. You just sit with it and it actually starts to open up. You know, what are my self-images? What's, what's going on when I don't like being criticized in front of 20,000 people? Um, and it was very interesting and I learned a tremendous amount. We kind of, I could say, thank you for criticizing me, you know, in some way. I mean, or it's like the Dalai Lama says to the Chinese, my, my friend, my enemy, <laughs> you know. Um, and it, it's a powerful one, though. And our minds often focus on feeling judged or feeling criticized. And we stay there, and it can really uh, take hold of us. So again, how do we practice, then, with these winds? To go back to that question of, uh, are we simply not to feel anything when the winds occur? I don't think so. Now, I was, I was thinking about this because, again, it was a great question that came up last time, partly related to the particular wording in the text where the Buddha said that the practitioner is no longer elated by the positive or dejected by the negative. And I looked in the text, I looked at a few different translations, and it is translated differently at times. And my get, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there may be a cultural difference here. I'm not sure of that. But it may be that the meaning in the text, I think the meaning of the text is clearly one of being attached to a particular state being there, as opposed to simply having a normal emotion. So they didn't say sad or happy. They used words like elated and dejected. My guess is that that might point to something that's a little more fixed or a little maybe that last more. I'm, I'm not sure of that. That's my interpretation. But I think certainly the practice that I uh, would suggest, and that sort of, I think is predominant with my colleagues at Spirit Rock, or I think with most contemporary teachers, is to uh, give full range to human emotion, but see where we get stuck. So I was thinking, for example, a story I heard, well, when the Dalai Lama, actually the Dalai Lama, asked to hear the stories of Tibetan refugees who come from occupied Tibet. He cries when he hears a lot of those stories. You know, 
uh, that, that tells me something. That's not about no feeling. But does he get attached to feeling? You know, does he get attached to feeling anger towards the Chinese? I don't think so. He's fully open, but it doesn't somehow stick in the way that it may stick for many of us. The winds, or the, to use the metaphor of the winds, that we get knocked around. And so I think that it's really uh, about having that full range of openness, but also uh, seeing where we get whatever the metaphor is, knocked around, stuck, caught, hooked, whatever. Some kind of getting fixed uh, so that there's not, no longer movement. That's what's being, that's what we're asked to investigate. So we, first of all, uh, before we even have a sense of practice, we can have a sense that we don't try to get rid of these winds. We don't try to get rid of the conditions. That's, that's a starting point. That's really challenging, right? That I can be with them. Uh, it doesn't mean if we're having intense pain that we don't act skillfully and, you know, I don't know, take ibuprofen or something. <laughs> you know, it's not pointing to that, but if there's some kind of, let's say, emotional pain, we may choose to be present with it, not simply get rid, not take as an immediate reaction to get rid of uh, one of the winds, just simply because it's there. We can't get rid of them, after all, many of them. And then we can name them, know that they're present, know that there's been gain or loss, Know that there's been praise or blame. Explore what's there in our consciousness. Explore the nature of the winds. What's our experience on them? What do I actually experience with pleasure or pain, gain or loss, praise or blame? What's my actual lived experience? And then how can I skillfully respond? And I think it's especially helpful to really look closely at the winds and I want to I finish by talking about a little more fully about what the characteristics, some of the characteristics of the winds, and then this sense of resting in something deeper. So one thing that's very helpful to look at is that the winds often are fleeting. You know, that pleasure and pain often doesn't last very long. That um, moments of gain or loss praise or blame, fame or disrepute. You know, it made me think of Andy Warhol's comments about our 15 minutes of fame, right? That often it's helpful to see that these things pass, that, you know, that we're seen one way, one day, and another way, another day, or that pleasure doesn't, doesn't necessarily uh, last very, very long. Or I remember um, one colleague at Spirit Rock, he was talking about how one is seen as a Dharma teacher, and his comment was, you're only as good as your last Dharma talk. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I, I think many of us could survive bad talks and still be held okay. <laughs> but but, that's, but that's, you know, that may be a way that it's seen, you know, uh, or, or, or um, you know, someone who's, you know, in, certainly in, uh, you know, in, like in certain business worlds, things sometimes are decided very, very abruptly, or, you know, someone, you know, some sports star has been with a team a long time, and then, you know, like even, what, even Joe Montana was released by the San Francisco 49ers, right, at some point. Um, everyone know who Joe Montana is? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So, um, so it, things are passing. There's a, there's a great Chinese story that goes like this, showing that points to the fleeting nature of gain and loss. It's said that um, there was a Chinese farmer who, who uh, um, lived on a farm with his wife and son. And um, one day, uh, a wild horse came uh, into the area, and they were able to uh, get the wild horse into their enclosure. And they were very happy, because this could be a uh, very positive experience. Another horse, horses weren't so common. It was really a great advantage for their farming. Gain, right? Then, and, and the, the farmer says, how lucky we are. You know? And then the next day, his son went to, uh, uh, as it were, domesticate the horse. And he fell off his horse and broke his leg. Loss. The father said, how unlucky we are. The next day, um, the local army came by because there was a war going on. And his son was not eligible because he had broken his leg. The father said, how lucky we are. This is, again, a teaching story. You could probably fill out the story another three or four rounds, right? You can get a sense of that. So it's helpful to see that these things are passing, that they don't always, that they don't always uh, last so long. Um, and that we can have, often we can have gifts that come from our difficult experience. Another reflection that's very helpful. Sometimes we learn tremendous amounts from our difficulties. You know, uh, personal difficulties, interpersonal difficulties, um, some of you remember uh, this famous poem by Rumi called The Guest House, where he, he says, uh, um, uh, welcome and entertain every guest that comes to your house, every experience. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. That guest may be clearing you out for some new delight, even if it's a hard one. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond in his teaching. So to explore the nature of the winds and ultimately, I think, to rest in something deeper. The question is, is there something that we rest in that's deeper than this or that wind? You know, is there some faith or some confidence or some way of being that we can rest in, some understanding that in a sense um, gives us something to have as a reference point for the ups and downs of life? It's certainly what's being pointed to in the Buddhist teachings, but many, many traditions. Some of you know the story of Job in the Hebrew Bible, right? Very much a teaching about the eight winds. Job and, and the sense of something deeper. Job is a uh, happy, pious man with, you know, eminent in the community, with a happy family. And then in the, in the story, a lot of negative things happen. I think he has a loss of many members of his family. His crops go bad. All sorts of negative things happen. And the question is, does he st- in that context, does he still have his faith in God? And his faith is challenged by those events. You know, does one's deepest understanding of faith depend only on things going well? 
So really a teaching about that, if that was the case, would that be really a deep faith? You know, so it's challenging teaching, right? You know, and, and we can look to people who have encountered all sorts of difficulties, and sometimes we meet them. You know, people like the Dalai Lama, who's been with so much suffering, or Thich Nhat Hanh with the Vietnam War, or uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, right? You know, we can look to these people, or people, many of you work with a lot of uh, people who may have a lot of suffering. And how do you keep your balance? Do you, can you rest in something deeper? Or I was, I was, again, I heard this morning a little bit of uh, Democracy Now! So maybe some of you listened to that program on, um, on the Pacifica Network. And they, were, they had some interviews with two young men who had, were both, um, had both um, essentially refused to deploy one of them to Iraq and one of them to Afghanistan. And they were talking about how both of them used this language. They said, I rest in my conscience and I can be with whatever happens. You know, I'm sent to jail. I rest in my conscience and that's deeper than this or that going well. You know, I would like not to go to prison but I'm willing to, because I rest in this, in this quality that's, that's, that's deeper. It's a, it's a deep teaching. You know, it's a strong teaching. And so in the Buddhist context, this especially means, can I rest in a kind of equanimity in which I can be with the whole set of winds occurring, can be with pleasure and pain and gain and loss, fame and disrepute and praise and blame, and some part of me doesn't get knocked around. That's what we develop in our practice. We really develop that and we connect it with awareness. We connect it with the open heart. We connect it with uh, community also, the community of fellow practitioners. And these give the potential to develop something that not only permits us not to be knocked around by the winds, but in a sense gives us um, resources that take us even beyond life and death, that we rest in something quite a bit deeper. This is from the teachings of the Buddha. Maybe I'll end with this. This is a teaching about equanimity. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. And so we find, I think, for ourselves what maybe what that deeper place is. And sometimes it's only the difficult experiences which really open up ourselves to that, that depth. It's just like, really, maybe I'll end with, maybe, maybe I could even ask you, if you, did you have that written down, what's your, what your friend? We, we come to what was said a lot before, you know, at the end of the meditation, that in stories of people who were encountering death, 
that they came back. I think several people mentioned it, that they came back to something deeper. In this case, it was called love. So maybe we'll end with that, um, with that passage. And maybe if you, could you come up and just sit right here and maybe use the microphone so it goes onto the recording. Is that okay? Barbara was a yoga teacher and she practiced a long time. And as she could barely breathe, dying from lung cancer and many other things, she said to her family and all of us, thank you to everyone. Love you all. Listen to this wonderful story. Love is all it's about. Happiness is based on our love. Listen with love and loving kindness. Love is good. I'm surrounded by love, and I'll take that with me. Thank you so much. And let's just sit quietly for a moment. We have some time together for any further reflections or uh, comments or questions. Please. Uh, I was struck in, in a little story you, you told starting things off. Um, uh, the, the advice was to uh, give up attachment to the eight worldly winds. Yeah. All eight of them. Attachment to even the more negative seeming winds. sat with that for a while, and, and in fact, I found myself strongly attached to, to, to the more negative things. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm struggling to understand. If you've got any wise words, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. <laughs> so, did everyone hear the question? It's, it was um, really about the, the phrase, attachment to the, the winds. A little bit of a mixed metaphor there, but um, maybe attachment to uh, um, the conditions. Um, and I, I think that attachment is a little bit shorthand, but strictly speaking, it's the, um, to the so-called positive, we tend to um, grab hold of them. And that would be connected with attachment. With the, the so-called negative, we tend to push them away. And so that, that, would, not be nece- that would technically not be attachment, but uh, aversion and pushing away. But, the, the teaching is really that these are analogous, that there's, there's an, a way in which um, uh, kind of consistent, almost compulsive aversion is a form of attachment to being, having experience be a certain way. So they're, I think just they're the two sides, as it were, of the same coin. Uh, but strictly speaking, the, the negative wouldn't be being attached to this. Of course, we can get attached to the unpleasant. You know, uh, but I think the the core of the teaching 
maybe it's more helpful to use the word attachment for the positive and some kind of uh, pushing away or uh, aversion, kind of the counter the counterpart of attachment. Does that make some sense? Uh, yes, uh, quite. Um, the first place my mind went to was uh, something the Dalai Lama said. He, he was asked the hallmark of Western civilization. The first thing he said was our self hatred. Yeah. 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 He didn't always know that. <laughs> yeah. He was. That's uh, that's that's interesting. Um, Essentially, yeah, essentially we can get very attached to the negative. Uh, we can get attached to a certain self-image, bec- uh, in large part because it's, it's familiar or known. You know, sometimes, very often, we prefer familiar suffering to the unknown. In fact, that's more than sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's that's getting some of what you were that, that talking. Resonates. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Please. Yeah. Um, actually, mine's a couple of things. Uh, yeah. And one of uh, the negativity that you just brought up. Uh, I was going to ask that question because um, I heard just recently uh, certain psychologists or psychiatrists said that seventy-five um, percent of our thinking is negative. Mm-hmm. And I went, wow. And then the other thing was uh, from your comment about, and I realize you said it a bit with tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. about uh, a Dharma teacher is only as good as his last uh, Dharma teacher. <laughs> and, and my um, response, or you know, my yeah. thought on that was um, because I'm a fifth grade teacher. Yeah. And I thought, because I realized the days when uh, I let myself feel like I judge myself by this yeah. one day that what didn't go well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Works for the practitioner. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. Uh, so great, great observations. Um, yeah, it may be. I, I don't know descriptively whether we, whether seventy-five percent of our thoughts are negative, but I, I do know. I was, I think, I was hearing this yesterday in some context that. Um, I think I was just talking with someone who was um, who had been uh, studying some of the literature on the brain, and he was—I think it was a he—was was saying, was just talking about the way that um, a lot of times um, our survival instincts, coming more from animal heritage, are continually on the lookout for threats. And so some, I think some of, if that is true about the 75%, I think would be connected with that. The way that we're continually monitoring could be a social threat, you know, bad reputation, blame, and so forth. So I think there, and that's something that is workable. I think that's also what the brain scientists were saying, that that may be a certain conditioning, but we have uh, that plasticity. We don't have to be dominated by those tendencies, but that may be connected with that. Uh, and yeah, in terms of that quote, I. I actually don't think that this particular person who said that really is sitting up, you know, the counterpart of me in this role, quivering about, will this, you know, will my reputation survive this talk? <laughs> um, uh, it, does, it does feel that way sometimes for many people at the beginning of their speaking careers. <laughs> it can feel that way, you know, one's 
first few talks. I, I can relate to that. Uh, you know, I remember the first public talk I ever gave, my knees were totally shaking. But I was very fortunate because I was um, sitting at a desk. <laughs> and they, could, they couldn't, no one could see. But I, I, it was really, I mean, you ever had your knees shake like that? It's really quite a phenomenon. <laughs> Who would think that knees just go back and forth like that? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's more an invitation to look. Is that the case? Uh, if I teach a class or if I give a talk that I don't think is so good, what does my mind do with that? Do I have to be perfect or is there some way of understanding that every role that we're in, there's room for learning? And we can, if we're, learn, if we're really going to learn, sometimes we have to push the edge, as it were. And that makes, you know, there can be experiments or make so-called mistakes. And because uh, if, you're, if one's really afraid of... Uh, uh, not doing well, we, I would, you know, if I, it was me, I would play it safe and not do certain things and be a certain loss of creativity there, right? So somehow, I'll just say one more thing on that because it's, it's really fascinated me that, because I, ha, I have a, I think I've had a certain conditioning that's more perfectionistic as probably many of you have had, many of us. And at a certain point, I think it was quite, a, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I, I suddenly had the insight I think it was in a, I think maybe we were discussing this in the group. And I had the insight of the basic um, contradiction for a perfectionist, which is that a perfectionist wants to, uh, wants to keep on moving closer to perfection. But because there's a demand to be perfect right now, there's no chance for any learning. And hence, the perfectionist will never become perfect. <laughs> That's one way of saying the country. Do you get it? The contradiction. It's like I was suddenly realized that basically perfectionism comes out of fear. And when there's fear, there's not going to be any possibility of new learning. And so, one's never going to be perfect. It probably could be phrased a few different ways, but that's, I think you, you get it, right? It's, it's very interesting. It's just these, our, our um, attachments and so forth, when you look closely at them, they typically have some inner contradiction like that that we're not quite aware of, but when we see it, oh my God. Yeah. There was another question, please. Yeah. Yeah. How do we relate to the fact of our animal nature uh, in terms of the eight winds? Um, well, it doesn't. Uh, Buddhists generally don't use the language of di- making a distinction between animal and human nature. Um, but the. I think the intention is to say that this is a typical conditioning to be hooked by the eight winds or to be knocked around by the eight winds and that this is not a desirable state of affairs, that this is linked with a certain way that we get locked into uh, suffering. You know, and there is a, um, you know, there is in the Buddhist, traditional Buddhist cosmology, there is an animal realm which is 
taken to, I think it's been, ta it's been it's taken to be ruled by by uh, by fear you know, and, the, and and the human realm is taken to be distinct now, I don't know how we would rework that given our contemporary knowledge and sensitivities but it is taken that a life ruled by fear and by trying to avoid pain doesn't permit the highest potentials to develop and so that's that that I think is sad. But it's even said that the human realm, when the Buddha was asked, who are you? He pointed, he said, I am awake. He, 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 and he was pointing to, as it were, uh, we would say a highly developed human. So there's also that distinction between, as it were, the normal human being and the human being who is awake. And all of these teachings point to the latter as the potential. So I think it does the idea is that it does go beyond that traditional conditioning. I think the question is, maybe that, you know, that occurs to me right now, is, um, is there potentially a loss that may occur when we misinterpret that? You know, so, for example, it might be a disconnection from our bodies. That could be... You know, and that, I think that's a danger sometimes. So is there a way that, as it were, we can preserve, as it were, the best of the animal realm without getting caught in fear all the time? That's, maybe that's a, a way to ask that question. And I think many people are asking that kind of question, you know, and, and from ecological perspective and, and others, you know, that, and as well as a lot of the scientific research which shows that we're much less different than animals, than many animals, than we have thought. I wonder if, I'm wondering if they have that same left brain, right brain, a thing that maybe is there, there's a part of them that also gets slaughtered by animals or animals. Yeah, that, that's actually, um, that was debated in China <coughs> for many, many centuries. And, and people took both perspectives. So uh, there, in Buddhist tradition, there has been a whole stream of thought that doesn't want to make a firm distinction between humans and animals, and that, can, that wants to see animals as potentially uh, open to awakening, for at least uh, certainly having the same core nature. Yeah. And in some of the Buddha's past lives, he is an animal. I think some of you know, and he's a very virtuous animal. <laughs> so, so it's very interesting, isn't, isn't all this? So I don't know. That's a whole. I don't know where that all will go, but it's. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll, we'll end here because we're we're just a few minutes over eleven. But just to close, and um, I would I hope that we can uh, take this very powerful practice and have this uh, stay with us at moments when there are. When, there, when, there, when one of the winds is present. You know, can I remember this teaching? And again, I think it's a very um, simple set of guidelines. Could be, know that, know that a wind is present, number one. Explore what the experience of the wind is, number two. And I'll add number three, see if you can rest in something deeper. And number four, What's a skillful response? So know that it's present, name it, name the wind, explore, 
rest in something deeper, and fourth, um, ask what would be a skillful response. I think that's generally um, probably good for everything in life, but <laughs> particularly, particularly good for the wind. So let's just sit for a minute or two to close. I think I'll I'll close with something that I received this morning in email from Ruth uh, Dudson, who's uh, our main, uh, kind of our lead volunteer here, who often makes the announcements. She uh, traveled to Asia. And here is her email from this morning. The eight worldly winds and transatlantic flight. It is a pleasure to be going on a flight to England to see my family, but a pain to have to sit scrunched up in a seat for 10 hours trying to sleep in an upright position. I should praise Virgin Atlantic for having a direct flight from San Francisco and for remembering my vegetarian meal on board, but instead I start to blame the flight crew for finding all the bumps in the clouds, so I have to keep my seatbelt fastened and not walk down the aisle to stretch my legs. The flight was fast, so we gained time and were able to land in London half an hour ahead of schedule. Unfortunately, when we got to the car car hire desk, Enterprise were so inefficient that we lost all that precious time and forgot to to buy the vital cappuccino, which would have kept us sane. Oh, for the fame of a movie star to whisk me magically to the front of every line. But then I could not be so carefree and spontaneous lest I I say one bad word and all too soon my fame would turn to disrepute. So the eight winds are now with me in England, and I am watching them gather in the clouds blowing overhead. (laughs) So thank you, Ruth, and may the benefits of the morning be offered uh, beyond these walls to all beings for their benefit, healing, and freedom. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you for that earlier reading. And thanks, everyone, for a uh, full presence. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.